Now I want to talk about something that, uh, oh, that uh, no, it sounds dismissive when I do that. Uh, every once, you know, I, a lot of things come across my desk. A lot of things, uh, blogs I go to, people I know, people I talk to or email, whatever. And, and a lot of times it's things that I think is interesting, but I think it's not necessarily worth mentioning to everyone. Uh, sometimes what I do is I make them into a little uh, message. That, they're on our website that are, that are less than 10 minutes. Uh, I call it not a message, just a thought. And this is one of those things, except it's, it's, it's much higher magnitude of scale. So I want you to look, you can look this up for yourself. And this is one of those things that talks about when we talk about the Bible and we talk about the Bible is reliable, all right? Um, a, a group of scholars, this just came out in Nature uh, magazine in a peer-reviewed article. So this is being, has been rigorously reviewed by other archaeologists. And uh, for about 20 years now, maybe 25 years, a group of archaeologists have been digging at a tell. Now, in, in Israel, in the Middle East, they call it a tell because it's, it's this big lump in the ground that tells them, not because it tells them, but they just call it a tell. It, but it shows that there was something there. There's an abnormal lump in the ground. There was a town or a city there, and it would be built and destroyed and built and destroyed and built and destroyed and built and destroyed until it becomes huge. And, and the one where most scholars, at least the majority of scholars, think the, uh, the city of Sodom is. They started digging 25 years ago, and, and they just, you know, going down layer by layer, how they do that, and learning all this stuff about the history of this land. Just uh, within the last three years, they came down to what they estimated was around 1650 B.C., which is about the time the, book of, the, the, book of, the uh, city of Solomon is mentioned in the book of Genesis. And they found an incredible burned layer of earth. But not just that it was burned, because they talk about it. And if you go to nature.com, Smithsonian Magazine's picked this up. A bunch of scientific magazines have picked this up. If you go to the, their website and read the paper, they go, a whole long, long section of it is how they determined uh, minerals and metals that were in the ground naturally and, and what what uh, temperature they melt at. And I think the highest is something like chromite, which melts at like, I think something like three and a half thousand degrees, three and a half thousand degrees Fahrenheit. And they found melted chromite. And then what they noticed was no skeletons, no bones. But actually then on further, as they dug more, and this is a whole series of discoveries they made, they just found lots and lots of tiny bits of human bones. So that what they're saying now, and this is, I'm summarizing it terribly, and is that a huge cataclysmic event happened right over the biblical town, biblical city of Sodom. And it was a cataclysmic event that heated the elements up over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It was a cataclysmic event that caused such a blast wave that the city walls, which they know from how they measure this stuff, it had two sets of city walls. The outer walls were about 20 feet wide, 30 feet high. The inner walls were wider and about the same height. And they were leveled. They were just destroyed. And, and, uh, and everywhere they went, things were just burned and annihilated. And so 
And then at the very end, they noticed that a layer of salt came down on the whole area, and the area was not occupied or lived on in for about 700 years because it was poisonous. It became known as the land of death, that area. And so now these are scientists, right? So they can't say, wow, God did it. God rained fire and brimstone down on Sodom like he said he did around 1650 B.C. And so what they've come up with, and this is, you know, is that it was a, it was a cataclysmic atmospheric airburst of a, uh, you know, of, of something coming from outer space. Now, this has happened, as far as we know, once or twice. 1908, it happened in Russia. Because what, what they noticed was they thought it was a meteorite, but they kept thinking there's no impact site. There's no crater right? And so they know if if circumstances are right, a meteorite can break into our atmosphere, get so superheated that suddenly it just explodes. uh, And they're estimating maybe about a thousand times the nuclear bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, the explosion. And so it's interesting to me, they have to come up with a scientific reason for how that happened, which, I mean, maybe God made a meteorite do that, which could just, that's okay with me. God can do whatever he wants. But it's an amazing thing to think that they dug down to the level that would be about the level that a cataclysmic event happened, and they found it. And they found it in a way that they never expected. They never expected something like that. They've seen cities destroyed by fire before, but that's just fire that doesn't get that hot. This city was absolutely wiped off the map and rendered uninhabitable, just as God said it would. And it's, this is one of those things that just becomes, it doesn't make our faith, doesn't make us believe. It just gives us more reinforcement that we can see, you know, God's word is true. God's word is true. And when he says things happen, they happen as hard as it is to explain. Because I know when I was in seminary and when I was studying in graduate school, I read author after author that said, we really struggle with this because we can't ever figure out where Sodom is, and we see no signs in the Middle East. Good. We see no signs in the Middle East of, uh, of any kind of a cataclysmic event like that, and now they do. And now it's uh, one more thing that we look at and say, man, we can trust. So we are going to go to God's word. This is the word we trust. And there are lots of reasons why I trust God's word, and I can't go through all of them sometime. I ought to do something like that. But I want, I want us to see today that we're going to look at this idea of the power of the truth from John 8, 21 to 30. Um, we're going to, I've got three points here, but I'm only going to hit one. The truth saves, the truth sets free. Oh, I misspelled set. The truth sets free and the truth offends. All right? But we're going to see the power of the truth how it affects people. And Jesus is going to say that. Now, if you remember what we've been talking about, we've been talking about uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light. I am the light. And he made this huge statement, which is saying, I'm the Shekinah glory. I'm the glory of God brought down to earth. I'm standing in front of you. You want to see the glory of God? Look at me. Look at me. And he says that. And so Christianity and Christians, we have to be people who are people of the truth, people who are all about truth, because it's the foundation for freedom that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us. Without truth, there is no freedom. And so we believe, I believe that the word of God is the truth. 
I don't believe we can ignore it. I don't believe we can deny it. I don't believe people can redefine it. I don't believe people can annul it. They can try all they want, but I don't think they can do that because it's the truth. And Christians do not get their truth. It's interesting how Christians uh, work in societies. In, in the history of the world, Christians don't get their truth from, from a cultural, uh, conservative culture. They don't get their truth from a very permissive culture. In a conservative culture, Christians look like liberals. In a, in a liberal culture, Christians look like radical conservatives. Why? Because we stand for the truth, and the truth doesn't fit into anybody's little category. It spans them all. I like to tell people, God, because we see it in Jesus' life, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He offends everyone. He looks at everyone and says, you must be born again. He looks at everyone. We're going to see this today. You will die in your sins. He looks at everyone and says that. And so in all cultures, Christians should be radicals because they stand for the truth. And this is key because people get their truth in all sorts of ways, but they are not set free by it. They still become slaves to their own passions. They're controlled by their ambitions, their lusts, their pride, their ego. And last week, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And it started off a series of questions and statements from the religious leaders. And so we see here, we're going to look at this, this truth that he's talking about, because he's the light. Last week we saw, I said, this truth has eternal significance. You are making a choice and eternity is at stake, he told the Pharisees. And also we're going to see, this is a perfect example of religion. Man-centered ideas about worshiping and serving God. So the first one, and when, as we see these implications of the truth, first one is the truth saves. Now let me read that passage. Let me read the whole passage. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Can you sense a little exasperation? I've been saying this so many times, you dopes. Right? Maybe not dopes, but Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So that first section, when we see in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus is coming to them, and he's talking to them. He's, he's, he's teaching them truth. He says, I want you to understand this. And he starts off by repeating a teaching that he's already made numerous times. He's doing that for emphasis. He's hammering them about sin, not something that everybody likes to talk about these days, but he's hammering them about this. See, they think, they think that there's these really big sins, and then they think there's these other sins that are not as important. They've categorized sin. This is what religion does. It categorizes these things. It creates lists and hierarchies, and it tells us, you know, who, who we are by, 
by way of these lists and who we're with and who we're not with. These are the people we're with. These are the people we're not with. We're for them. We're against them. Tells them who we care about and who we don't care about. This is how the Pharisees can get upset. This is why they get upset. These lists and these hierarchies and everything, why they get upset that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and they don't even pay attention or care that a person, a human being, was made whole. That doesn't even occur to them to think about. All they can think of is their lists and their sins and the lies and all these things. They say, oh, we got all these things. So they elevate some sins and they diminish others. Now, before we get too dismissive of them or look down upon them and do just what they do, before we do that, we need to think about this because we do this also. We judge people. We judge one another. We're quick to judge someone's heart. We're quick to judge someone's motives. We measure people's relationship with God by standards that we've made up that oftentimes can be wrong. I like to think of this uh, a lot of times. I missed this before, but I like to think of this this way. I think of our growth in Christ as kind of a, like a bar graph. There's all these different areas, and we're growing in our different areas. In some areas, we're doing better than others. In some areas, we're not, right? So, like, if I have a friend, and, and I'm totally making this up, like, I have a friend, and let's say my friend has an anger problem, right? So, so they're whatever's bad on a bar graph. Say on this one, it's high. Their anger's way up here. It's very high. Now, I don't particularly have a huge anger problem, so my, I'm down here. I'm doing really well. So it's easy for me to look at that person and say, oh, he calls himself a Christian. Look at him. He loses his temper just like that. He can't be walking with God. I just don't know who, I, I don't know, right? Easy to judge. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that I struggle with overeating, gluttony. I know you're looking at me like, no, you don't, Bob. No, you don't. Right, thanks. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm just making it up, right? But I don't think that's so bad. Why? Because I struggle with it. It's up here. Now, let's say he doesn't, and it's down here, right? What do I do? I go, oh, this, I'm really struggling. But this isn't, I mean, it's just a norm. We all have this problem. Don't we all have this? I tend to dismiss it. I tend to condemn him for doing what I don't do, and I dismiss the fact that he doesn't do what I do. I tend to make it easier. I tend to be, you know, somebody else comes to me and goes, I struggle with gluttony too. Oh, I understand. It's not a big deal, right? I'm real graceful to someone who's struggling with what I struggle with. And, and what are we doing? We're deciding what the hierarchy of sins are. We're making the decision because it's my list, and it's pretty arbitrary. But God sometimes gives us lists. Proverbs 6, he gives us a list. He says, there's seven things that I hate. There's seven things that I call an abomination. Hateful. I hate it. And interestingly, three of those seven things are sins of speaking, sins of the mouth, the ones that we tend to not think, you know, I know sometimes I talk about people behind their back, but it's, I don't mean it bad. It's a prayer request, right? We, we tend to disguise it any way we can. God says, spreading rumors, I hate that. God says, causing division, saying things about other believers, causing divisions within the body, I hate that. 
God says looking down on people or belittling people. I hate that. And then he says murder. I hate that too. And he puts them in the same list. Now, I don't know anyone who thinks murder is a great idea or not a problem or not a sin. Very few of us, hopefully, very few of us struggle with that one. Some of you haven't told me something. But lots of people admit, I admit, I can struggle with my mouth. And God says, I hate them both. So this is what the Pharisees have done. They've made their list. This is what religion does. It, it, it makes lists, and it makes you fit in the list. Then he refers to his death. He says, he says in verse 21, Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And then Jesus said, will he kill himself? What is he talking about? He, says, he's making, he keeps making references to his death, the fact that he has to go away. He keeps saying this, and he knows, we've talked about this so much with the way Jesus teaches. He oftentimes teaches knowing that they don't get it, but he's planting the seeds for the future when they will get it. And so they struggle with this concept that he's telling them. They say, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? See, obviously, they understand there's a reference to death here. They get that but they can't conceive. They can't conceive that they would not go to God when they die. They can't conceive of that. So he must be talking about something else. He must be going somewhere different. And Jesus shows them there's a difference. There's a bigger difference between him and between them than just some sort of ultimate destination. What does he say? He says, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. He says, there's a huge difference between us. The difference is where we come from. The difference is, what's, what are we a part of? He's from above. He's not of this earth. He's the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of earth. They're of the earth. And he says, you will die in your sins because you're of this world. There's only one answer to this. Verse 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Believe. This is the answer, he says. This is the answer. Believe. Trust me. Commit yourself to me. Live for me. This is the answer to that. Literally, he says, and this is kind of an interesting, look, researching this a little bit, I was keyed, off, keyed to this uh, by someone I was reading, and they were saying the sentence structure is very interesting here because literally it says, if, uh, he says, you have to believe that I am. He, he keys back into that Old Testament phrase, the name of God, I am that I am. And Jesus says, you have to believe that I am. Now, in the English, they say that I am he. They add the he because it doesn't, it, it's got to have a predicate. There's something's got to connect there. It's got to have, you know, it's got to, I'm not always using the right thing. It, it doesn't make sense. And yet, if you know biblically what he's saying, it makes perfect sense. You must believe that I am. What is he saying? That I'm God. I'm using the name of God. So this belief is not mere intellectual belief. It's a belief that acts. I have to be different. When I believe in Jesus, I want to be different. I want to be like him. 
I want to follow him. And now I'm in a relationship. I don't just know about him. I believe in him. You know, when we talk about the word of God, and that I believe this is the word of God, I think there's great reasons to believe that. Ultimately, it still is part of our faith. But there are great reasons, logical reasons to believe it. But one of the things, too, that's interesting is we don't think about this very often is there are consequences if it is not the Word of God. And I want to touch on that. If this is the authoritative Word of God, then you can have a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. If it is not, you can only have a philosophical, just some sort of conception of Him. Now, why? Well, imagine trying to get to know someone who will not speak to you. It may be, it may be this, this woman, and, and, and you want to get to know her. And you can, you can study about her. You can talk to others about her. You can get legal, legal records about her. You can write a book about her, a biography about her if you want. But unless she talks to you, you don't have a personal relationship with her. You can know a lot about God. But to have a personal relationship with God, there must be communication. There must be sometimes somewhere where you can say, God is speaking to me. God is speaking. And if you take the word of God and then you start to pick and choose, then what you're doing is you're simply constructing the God that you want. I don't like this. Throw that out. I do like this. Okay, I'll keep this. Ooh, that sounds rough. Throw that out. But I like this. So now what are you doing? You're making your own God in your image, and you're deciding, this is who I think he looks like. And lo and behold, he looks like me. And so you see, to know God, you have to allow him to speak for himself. You have to allow him to speak for yourself. See, you could say, like sometimes I'll get up here and I'll talk about it, and I say, look, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. There's nothing special with climbing up four steps and, and studying and then being able to, there's nothing, it doesn't make me special. And you can say, hey, Bob, you know, you say that. You say you're just like us, and you say you struggle like we do, that you're one of us. But I really think you're basically perfect. You're spiritual. You're godly. You're tall. You're slim. You're beautifully bald. Right? And you can say, I don't believe that you're just like us. To which I would reply, you're right. Can I borrow some money? No, no, that's not. I would say... It's nice that you think that, but you don't know me. You don't know me. There are some people here I've known a long time, not including my family. Just not, let's leave them out. Just, just people here. And, you, and right away, you're like, yeah, yeah, no, you're not like that. I know you. Right. Why? Why? Because we've talked, because we've communicated, because we've spent time together. And that's what I would say. You don't know me if you think that. You're refusing you are refusing to be controlled by what I say about myself. Now, you could say, well, then you could lie, but that would tell you something about me too, right? That would tell you a lot about me. That would reveal. My words reveal me. So often our problems with God come down to a control issue. I want to be in control of my life. And his word right now is contravening my desires, so I don't want that part. I don't like to relinquish control. So I push back, so I rebel. That's what we do. And Jesus is here. He's saying, believe in me. Enter into a relationship with me like the one I have with my Father. It's possible. 
it's possible. And his opponents are simply saying, no, we are not willing. We are not willing. So when they say, who are you? Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. Can you imagine that, hearing that? I got a lot to talk to you about. You ever get that? Somebody somebody calls me up and says, hey, we need to talk. And sometimes I'll just say, okay, can you just give me a brief description? Because if you're going to drop a bomb on me, I'd like to be wearing armor. You know, I'd like to be kind of ready if you're going to hammer me with something, right? Jesus just says, I got a lot to talk to you guys about. And we hear it later, right? We hear it when he says, woe to you, you whitewashed tombs, you snakes, you brood of vipers. He lays it out. But now's not the time. I have so much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. He's saying, I am doing what God wants me to do. Now's not the time for that. That'll come, right? But I'm doing what God wants me to do. They get that Jesus has made some kind of astounding claim because they say, when they say, who are you? It's constructed in a way that seems to be like this. It seems to be saying almost like you. Who are you to be saying these things? It's kind of a mocking idea. And they're taken back. Who do you think you are? And Jesus is basically saying, I know exactly who I am. The Father tells me what to say. I'm repeating it to you. There's some more I want to say. That will wait because the Father said wait. I tell the world, he says, what he wants me to say. I will do what he wants me to do. The whole world, not just the Jews, every little bit of this shakes these people to the core of what their beliefs were, shakes their religious ideas of who they are. And immediately, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. They could not figure that out. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and I that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed him. They didn't understand. They could not believe. They did not want to believe. And sometimes God works in ways that we don't understand. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations in our lives where we just say, God, I don't understand this. I can't make sense of this. This is horrible. Why are you allowing this to happen? And in those situations, oftentimes God says, trust me, guys. Believe in me. Trust me. I know that's hard. But we struggle with that. But we see it. I mean, we see it all the time. Parents make decisions that their children can't understand. But they know it's best. The parents know it's best. And they ask their kids to trust them. My oldest son was very little. He had this weird thing. He, He always liked to go out especially in the summertime, go out and sit in the middle of the road. And I don't know if it was the heat coming through the diaper or whatever it was, but if you weren't watching him, he would go to the middle of the road and sit down and play with whatever he's playing with. And you had to run out and grab him. So immediately, you know me, good parent, I'm explaining physics. You know, a force that meets an object, an object that is not immovable. Um, he won't get that, right? So I have to say, you got to trust me on this. Dude, you got to trust me on this. And if you won't trust me, I'm going to enforce it. You may not go on the street. Now, you just think about his point of view. I don't understand what he's talking about. Immovable force. I don't understand that. 
It's not fair. That's what it is. It's not my, my dad's not being fair to me. He's ruining my happiness on purpose just because he's bigger, right? He won't let me have fun. You won't let me do what I think is best. Just because you're bigger, you think you can enforce these things? And you see now, saying to my son, you will understand this one day. You will understand this. And of course, me being brilliant, I figured out how to get him to understand it. We drove by a dead squirrel one day, and I pulled the car over, and I got him out of the car, and I moshed him over to that squirrel, and I said, you see that squirrel? What happened to that squirrel? And he said, that squirrel's like a pancake. I said, yeah, that little boy squirrel went and played in the road when his parents told him not to. That's what happens. (gasps) The light dawns, right? I said, dude, you're 18. you got to figure these things out, right? (laughs) No. You will understand this. Jesus is telling them, you will understand this. I'm telling you something. Believe me. And, and here's the deal. When they do understand it, they still may not believe it. And we know for most of them, they didn't. Some did. But they still didn't believe it, but they understood it. And if you choose not to, he says, you will die in your sins. And Jesus here is tapping into this relationship. I think that's so key here, this relationship that he has with the Father, the Father and the Son. And when you see this, if you, if you read this carefully, you see intimacy and you see love and you see faithfulness and you see joy. Because Jesus is saying in these little verses here, he's saying, I submit to him. He teaches me. He sent me. He's with me. He will not leave me alone. I please him. Do you realize you can say those things? If you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you're walking with him, if you're trying to follow after Jesus Christ, these things are true about you. He wants you to submit because he knows what's best. He teaches you. He sends you. He's with you. He will not leave you alone. And the hardest one, you please him. He's happy with you. He rejoices over you. It's like if there was one thing that every true believer in God could rejoice over. I mean, you know, I was trying to think about that. It was one thing every true believer in God. If the Washington football team won the, the Super Bowl, every true believer would celebrate. I know there's a few that would not rejoice, and I don't want to question your salvation. But, yeah, some serious repentance up in this piece needs to happen, right? So he's pleased with you. He's not... He's not loving you. And this took me so long as, as a follower of Christ. This took me so long to get this straight in my head. He's not loving you because he has to. It's not like, well, I promised Bob that I'd love him, but look at him. He's a, I'll love him. He holds his nose and loves me. No, it's not like that at all. He loves us dearly. He loves us dearly. And we have trouble believing it. I was reading the other day, um, in a devotional, and the guy I was reading said, we tend to project onto God our insecurities and our struggles. That's so true. We, think that, we tend to think that God loves like we love. We tend to think that God accepts someone like we accept someone. We tend to project upon him our insecurities, our struggles. And it's not true. Because no matter what, he still loves us. He still works with us. I mean, he may confront us. He may encourage us. He may discipline us. He may bless us. But he doesn't quit on us. 
And God says, I'm working in you. And you may think, oh, I'm not always sure. But think of a time where you said something that you normally would not have said. Maybe you said something that was very graceful in a situation that normally you would have reacted angrily to. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but every once in a while that'll happen with me, and I'll walk away going, where did that come from? Where did that come from? And it's from God because he's changing us. He's changing us from the inside out. He's making us and shaping us to be more like his son, Jesus. And Jesus here is emphasizing the relationship that he has with his father. He wants them to see how incredible this relationship is because relationship is key for us. Remembering that this relationship with God for us is a process. Over and over in Scripture, it, it helps us understand this. It's a process. All they had, they had religion. And religions, religion will do things in the name of God that God says don't do. Religion is darkness. In the name of God, religion will lie, just like the Pharisees did. Religion will steal. Religion will oppress. Religion will enslave. Religion will condemn. Religion will murder in the name of God. It uses wisdom, maybe even God's word, to control people rather than to foster relationship. Getting people to do things becomes more important than their relationship with God and with others. And people will identify you in a certain way. Religion, religion will do this to you. Religion will say you're unforgiven. You're unloved. You will never change. You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. You're a total failure. You're beyond repair. You're beyond hope. That's what religion tells us. Jesus says, I want you to walk in the light with me. He just said he's the light. I want you to walk in the light with me. I want you to, the light will show you who you really are, who you are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are loved. You can change. You are not a prisoner of your past. You are God's success story. And you are now in a relationship with the living hope of the world. Now, I read that, and I know a lot of times for me, I'm like, yes, God, that's what I want. I fall short so many times. That's what I want. I want that in my life. How do we get that? We're going to talk about that more next week, but just, just briefly. He says, seek me and you will find me. Taste and see the Lord is good. Maybe, maybe you're here. Maybe you're listening online. And you're like, Bob, I don't, even, I don't even think I'm a Christian. I don't even know if I believe any of this stuff. Or maybe you're very sure I don't believe in this stuff. Well, let me just give you a, just an idea. Seek him. Pursue him. Say, God, if you're there, I want to see you. If you're there, reveal yourself. But here's the key. You have to be willing. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, if we want to know God better, we have to be willing, right? God, I want to know you more. Okay, I want you to quit doing that. Okay, never mind. That is just a step too far, God, right? I can't do that. I can't, God, you don't understand. But what do we do? We seek him. We pursue him. We go. We worship. We meditate. We praise God for what he's done through Jesus. And then what happens? The Spirit of God begins to work. You know, I, I say this sometimes, but I think it's just like, like worshiping on a Sunday morning. Sometimes we're singing, and it's just, it just moves me. It affects me. And, and, and now music, music has a certain kind of beauty that is just music. Music is beauty and reflects God through that. And that's a good thing. But anyone can sense that. But for a Christian sometimes, when we worship, the Spirit works. The Spirit impresses you. 
You think, I need that. I want to do that for you, Lord. I want you. I need you. I need to confess that. And maybe then something very specific is impressed upon you. That's the Spirit working through that experience, working through that to bring something to you. Maybe you hear a message and it moves you. You know, I, I love history. I'm, I'm crazy about history. And then I also, my dad, um, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II in the Ardennes Forest. And so one time um, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about that battle and that this guy had written a book about it. And so I, w- I just wanted to hear him. I wanted to listen to him because I was eating it up, right? Because I, I like that kind of stuff. And he talked, about, he talked about critical failures that were made during critical, critical mistakes that were made during the Battle of the Bulge and, and, and ideas and plans that, that, although they looked good, had no hope of, of ultimately working and where the failures were in intelligence and all these different things. And I'm like, yes, yes, this is so cool. This is stuff that I, some of it I knew, but some of this stuff I don't know. But I didn't leave talking to that guy and being so enthralled and engaged. I know for some of you, like, you were engaged in that. Duh, right, nerd. Okay, that's fine. But I was, whatever it is for you. But I didn't walk away from talking about the Battle of the Bulge and the Ardennes Forest going, I need to be a better husband to my wife. There's a sin I need to confess. There's a person I need to call and get right with. It didn't spur me to spur, spur me on to that, right? It didn't do that. But sometimes I even leave here and I go, that was the best message. That pastor's an awesome guy. What a privilege to sit under his teaching. I wish he would talk longer, right? Sometimes I leave here going, yes, God, this is me too. That's why I tell you, this is not me telling you what to do. It's all of us together learning and experiencing and walking. And we worship and we praise and we meditate. And sometimes we come crying, Abba, Father, through the Spirit, so that we quench the Spirit less, we grieve the Spirit less, and we begin to understand better our standing in the faith and who we are in Jesus Christ. And God works on us, and it's a change, it's a transformation that happens from the inside out. That's the only kind of transformation that works, happens from the inside out, because of this incredible Savior that we have. You know, there's a lot of other faiths. There's a lot of faiths that tell you you have to do good, that make you do good, and you can feel good about that. And there's a lot of religions in this world that want to make this world a somewhat better place to live. But none of them can do this. None of them can transform you from the inside out. This is not a self-help program, right? This is a heart change program starts in the inside, and it works its way out. And at the end of this passage, even as he spoke, many believed in him. Why? Why? Because this is something that touches our heart. We go, I want that. I want that. That's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. That's what I've been trying to shove things into my life to, take, to, give, to make me feel a certain way. That's what I need. And so when many heard this, God worked and many believed. 
Now, whenever you have a huge crowd, and many believe, you've got many that don't. And as we continue this passage, Jesus is going to continue to address that. And uh, next week, next week, and I'm, ex- I'm really excited about this. I-, I wanted to hurry through this one almost to get to next week, but I knew that would be the wrong thing to do. Next week, we're going to see how the truth makes you free, how you can be free, free in the total sense of the word, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that this is the truth, that we have an ability to say, God has spoken to me. Sometimes through your word, sometimes you, you give us impressions, you, you lead us, you, you guide us. But this is a relationship, Lord, and we're thankful for that, that it is nothing less than a relationship because everything else will not change us. So, Lord, we ask you to work in our lives, to work in our hearts, to begin to guide us and lead us. Father, I know there's many people here today, here or online, struggling with significant things, not knowing what to do. And I pray that you would give them wisdom for those that are hurting with deep hurts that seem to never go away, that you would show them that you you have that hurt and you're there for them. And Father, for all of us, that more than anything else, we would seek to follow you, to live for you. And in doing that, we become the person you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.